the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. America's most famous dessert. There's always room for gel. Hello, my name is Ben. What? I know. Oh, yeah. That's going to take me a minute to wrap my head around. It's not worth it. No, it is worth it. You, you, you kind of just broke my brain. Um, but I guess I'm Noel and I think this is ridiculous history. And today we're talking about jello, but not just any jello. I mean, we're going to cover, we're going to run the gamut of, of all gelatinous products. Mm-hmm. But specifically today, we're talking about meat jello. It's a real thing, and it's something that you and I and our super producer, Casey Pegram, have talked about off-air in the past before we even started doing this show, which is amazing when you think about it. Uh, you and I and Casey and probably some of you, friends and neighbors, have a preoccupation, a morbid fascination with gelatin. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I have a very distinct memory from my childhood. Um, and it was my mother really prided herself on doing these very elegant table settings. And she carried on this tradition from her mother, who always used to make a little side dish with the alarmingly odd name of gentleman's salad. What is this gentleman's salad, you might ask? What is this gentleman's salad? I thought you might ask. I'll tell you. What it is, Ben, is a thing that was very in all the rage of the highest of fashion in the 50s and 60s, mid-century and beyond, um, fell out of fashion closer to the late 70s, the early 80s, but we'll get to that. But what gentleman's salad is, is a molded, gelatinous, I don't know if it's a dessert. It's not really served in the place of a dessert. It's sort of a pre-meal thing like you'd eat a salad. Mm-hmm. But it's not a leafy green. No, it's a weird little gelatinous mound of lime green stuff that's kind of full of nuts, chopped nuts and uh, marshmallows, I want to say, and topped with a dollop of creme fraiche 
or horseradish. Ooh, if you want to get spicy, right? Exactly. And it's one of these things that as a kid, my mom insisted that I take a bite, even though I just, it was just one of those things I just didn't trust. My little kid brain kind of recoiled at mm-hmm. it. Um, it didn't taste awful. The, the, I avoided the horseradish, but that was apparently I was missing out on the full impact of the dish. But this was a thing, and, and not just meat jello, but jello in general, gelatin salads mm-hmm. was a very easy way for home cooks to show kind of like opulence and and class and elegance. And today we often think of a salad as something with leafy greens, right? With fresh herbs, fresh vegetables, a little bit of cheese and maybe some uh, protein in the form of nuts or tuna or whatever. But a salad essentially is only a mixture of different ingredients. So when we're saying gelatin salad, uh, we are accurately describing this strange phenomenon of uh, throwing everything and the kitchen sink into gelatin. And gelatin is a very strange thing when you think about it. Uh, we know that it's ancient. We know that traces of gelatin were found in ancient Egypt, and we generally in the West trace the use of gelatin as a foodstuff to medieval England. That's right. I actually found a gelatin recipe uh, from 1747 from a London cookbook um, from an author by the name of Hannah Glass. And uh, we'll go into a little bit more of the modern uh, ways of making gelatin, but this is is the old school way. I'm going to read this verbatim because it is delightful. So first, take out the great bones of four calves' feet and put the feet into a pot with ten quarts of water, three ounces of horseshorn, three ounces of Iceland glass, a nutmeg quartered, four blades of mace, then boil this till it comes to two quarts and strain it through a flannel bag. Let it stand twenty-four hours, then scrape all the fat from the top, very clean, then slice it and put to it the whites of six eggs beaten to froth. Boil it a little and strain it again through a flannel bag. Then run the jelly into little high glasses. You may add orange flower water or wine and sugar and lemon if you please. But this is all fancy. As you can see, we are fans of collecting recipes from olden days. And we have found that the measurements get kind of iffy and ad hockey. But this is, this is a real recipe and... If you have these calves' hooves or some orange water, was it orange water or sugar? Uh, It was uh, orange flower water. Orange flower water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, If you have this, please feel free to make it. Please send us pictures. I know all three of us would love to see it. Nowadays, we use the term jello synonymously with gelatin, but Jell-O is a name brand with a history of its own. Uh, the the mix-up here, the conflation is similar to the way that people say Google as a verb when they're referring to any internet search. Or like Kleenex for any kind of uh, tissue. Mm-hmm. Or like Xerox for copiers. Sure. Gelatin itself, brand names aside, is a translucent, colorless and flavorless thing on its own own. And you make it using collagen from various animal parts, as we saw in our recipe with calves hooves. It's not just used in food. It's commonly used as a gelling agent in food, but it's used in a bunch of non-food applications as well. Photography, vitamin capsules. Sure. 
And the way it's made today is obviously much more of an industrial process. And just to kind of give you the quick and dirty of how it's made today, it's made using largely washed pig skins that are then cleaned. I actually found a video online where it shows the process in reverse uh, from a nice uh, little gummy bear being popped into someone's mouth backward to all the different steps of the manufacturing process until it ends up with a cute little piggy looking you in the eye. I think it was kind of designed to make you feel bad about eating gummies, but uh, we're not here to tell you what to do. We are here to tell you how gelatin is made. So these cleaned pig skins are washed and then they are soaked and uh, they're given an acid treatment. And the idea is to break down the tissues so that the uh, collagen is kind of made into smaller chunks in these strands of gelatin. They call it gelatin noodles uh, in the manufacturing process. They thicken when they're cooled and then various stages of hot water extraction is done. And it's done up to six or seven times with the temperature of the water um, being raised for every step. Um, and the earliest extractions are apparently the more powerful or, or I guess the, the, they hold their shape better. And the subsequent extractions, it becomes a little bit weaker. And one of the things that baffles us about this process is that most people growing up don't know the gelatin or your favorite flavor of jello does derive ultimately from these animal proteins. I think, you know, it's not quite on the level of Santa Claus. Spoiler alert, everybody. But I think a lot of kids have no understanding of the origin of gelatin that we just walked through. And today we're asking why jello and gelatin uh, themed food dishes became so prevalent for a time. It was a fad. They rose and they fell. And you can find different cookbooks or different articles citing this rise. But we wanted to track down the answer. And I want to give a big shout out to Dan Myers over at The Daily Meal. In January of last year, uh, he tackled this question about why there were so many gelatin-based dishes in the 1950s and the 1960s. And you know, you and I have looked through these old recipes, and it's true. Jello today is treated mainly as a dessert, but during that time period, it would be the entire meal. You would have the sweet and the savory together in this mold. There's really no other way to say it. Yeah, and those molds themselves were staples of mid-century kitchens in all kinds of shapes, uh, but this goes way way farther back than um, the 1950s and 60s, far back really to medieval England. And while we're, while we're here in the medieval era in Western Europe, we need to add a, uh, we need to add another aspect to the story, another aspect to the story. Gross. I'm proud of that one. So <laughs> one of the, one of the most important things about gelatin, aside from it being a luxurious food stuff, is that it was a pretty effective preserver. We have to remember that this was centuries before anything like refrigeration existed. Totally. And also, not to mention, um, an article from history.com called Jiggle It, The History of Gelatin's Aspects and Jellies. Um, the writer, Nate Barksdale, mentions the fact that, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the Protestant Reformation and Butter episode, Catholics were not allowed to eat meat on Fridays. So there were late medieval cooks who came up with ways of making jelly out of fish. Uh, and that was like they would boil fish stock, uh, even use the, the swim bladder 
otters um, and uh, and eels were ways of making these uh, these meat jellies. And there was another fish jelly product called isinglass that was made using sturgeon. So this was a way of being able to preserve that food and also, you know, not eat pig products. Mm-hmm. And jellied eels, by the way, are a traditional English dish that is still popular today, and I really want to try it. Have you ever tried jellied eels? Just on the off chance. We didn't talk about oh, this no. before. No? Oh, no. You're not into it? Not for me. <laughs> no, thank you. Well, well, you know, let's put a pin in it. I don't want to peer pressure you, but, I, I, you know, what is life if not to be lived, my old friend? One more little story uh, in Japan, even, in the late 1600s uh, from the same History.com article, there was an innkeeper from Kyoto named Minoya Tarazoman who found some congealed soup some fish soup that um, had been thrown away and discarded and noticed that it was congealing. So that kind of became the inspiration for seaweed jellies that became quite popular throughout Asia. And remain popular today. Uh, so we're doing pretty well going chronologically here. Let's look at the first patent. The first patent for the manufacture of gelatin arrives in 1754 in England. And at the time, kind of a novelty, but everybody knew about it. It's just now somebody got the rights to it, and it took off, especially with the upper crust. Yeah, that's true. And it wasn't the patent that was going to really win the day for uh, gelatin-based products. That comes a little later. But we do have the introduction of kind of someone you could consider to be the world's first celebrity chef, a man by the name of Marie-Antoine Caramay. And in an NPR piece by Nicole Jankowski, um, she kind of describes how Caramay um, really revolutionized the use of gelatin for these opulent culinary creations. Um, he was actually born uh, the 16th child of very, very poor parents in Paris in the late 1700s, either 1783 or 1784, um, and was abandoned by his parents during the most violent days of the French Revolution. Uh, he worked his way up uh, from a, a kitchen boy to a apprentice of a well-known pastry chef named Sylvan Bailey, and then found his way to having his own shop. And that was largely because he created these insane edible replicas of late 18th century buildings, some of the most famous buildings, things like the ancient ruins of Athens or Chinese fortresses and things like that. And they were quite tall and were displayed in the window of his bakery. And he Turned some heads, folks like Napoleon Bonaparte and uh, French diplomats like Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord uh, decided to employ him. And uh, Perigord actually got him to make a full menu for his own personal estate. And it was later when he his creations made it to Europe when the Prince Regent George IV asked him to come over and prepare a menu for a party that he was having. Caramay, you see, was a huge fan of aspic. And I've kind of been asking myself, like, what's the difference between aspic and gelatin in general? It turns out aspic specifically involves using, like, a meat broth, like it's called a consomme, and it typically is savory, so it can include things like vegetables or sliced beef or chicken or anything you could think of. And Caramay coined this term chauffeur 
froid, which was French for hot cold. And the idea was that parts of it would be cooked and then it would be served uh, cold. But the whole idea was it was a big – it was a show. It was a culinary display of that opulence that you talked about. This was not something that anyone could have. You had to have a whole staff to be able to prepare this thing. I mean it was a pretty serious, almost scientific process of straining and setting. And in a time before industrialization and refrigeration, it was a really big deal to be able to make this stuff. And it caught on in New York high society as well. And even Thomas Jefferson and his Monticello estate uh, was a huge fan of having um, wine gelatin served with meals. And that's a that's a very interesting point there about the luxurious nature and the luxurious origin of this food stuff, of this application of food, because later we're going to see this change to a matter of convenience as well as status. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer, yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. We left off the story with Thomas Jefferson. Let's fast forward to 1845 when we meet a fellow named Peter Cooper. Along with being the inventor of the first American-built steam locomotive, Pete, I'm going to call him Pete, uh, created a way to make gelatin more accessible to the masses by making it 
a powder. Uh, this is where we see another patent come into play. He called this stuff portable gelatin because all you had to do was to add hot water. And unfortunately, although it's sure caught on later, uh, Pete did not have much success marketing it, and he didn't really pursue his invention. Occasionally, he sold it to cooks, but he didn't commercialize it beyond that. He was actually more into powdered glue, believe it or not. Why don't you think it caught on? It seemed like it was such a to-do to make this stuff and for someone to be able to be like, hey, I got the quick fix right here for your, for your gel cooking. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good point. It's a great question. So let's go to Rochester, New York, a, a little town outside of there, in fact, called Leroy. This is where we meet a couple by the name of Pearl and May Waite, who at the time that we find them are running a not entirely successful cough syrup and laxative business. It's a good combo. They should make a combination cough syrup laxative for when you can't poop and you have a bit of a croup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like, can be, they can have that. That can be the, uh, the, the, the tagline. It could be like that uh, combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell song. I, I think we just figured out their uh, marketing for them. So what's the scoop, Ben? What what what, uh, what what did old Pearl and, and May come up with? I'm so glad you asked, Noel, because fortunately for this episode, it wasn't all uh, mediocre laxative business, especially because we're a family show. According to the Chemical Heritage Foundation, the weight couple was looking around for something they could do differently, right? A way to evolve their business into a more successful entity, and they obtained that earlier patent for powdered gelatin. They also encountered one of the big cons of gelatin at the time, which is that it was tasteless. It was just sort of like this translucent goop. Where you see a con, I see a blank slate rife for innovation. And luckily they did too because they realized that they could add syrups to this and the gelatin, while it may not have a flavor of its own, is an excellent platform for other flavors. They blank slated it just as you said. They added sugary fruit syrups like raspberry, strawberry, lemon, orange. No word if it's orange flower, but orange, that's close enough. Orange flower is so vague. What kind of flower are we talking about? I guess literally any flower that is orange. Rose water, maybe? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I don't know. It's interesting, too, Ben, because before the weights came into the picture, your buddy Peter Cooper, he didn't just patent the gelatin. He patented a gelatin dessert mix of his own creation, which was um, a powdered mix with uh, lemons, um, sugar, eggs, and various spices. But he just didn't have that marketing prowess that was required to really sell this to the world. And there was a zeitgeisty element to this stuff, too, that we'll get into in just a second. For now, you're probably wondering, folks, where did this name Jello come from? We'll tell you. So the weight couple had this gelatin idea, right? And the way that they flavored it made it about 88% sugar. <laughs> But they were overjoyed. Nobody was worried about the sugar content at that time. They were overjoyed because it tasted good. And May Waite named this new favorite dessert Jello. It's a portmanteau combining the words gelatin and jelly, both of which derive from the Latin meaning to congeal or to freeze. And oh man, it's good. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah that's that's mine. I thought that was good. As for the O part. Historians attribute it to just a, a naming trend. It was apparently very popular to add O at the end of your product name. Whammo! There we go. Bingo! <laughs> I feel like you're on a roll. Tally-ho! 
What, 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 uh, that, give that, me that, that last one is. That was older. Yeah. Do you think of any? No, you're right. That like Wizzo, like not only product names, but even like company names, right? Sure. Yeah. Blinko, Rinko, etc. Probably had like a futuristic vibe. <laughs> Apparently, according to the Dictionary of Trade Named Origins, which is a real book, the practice began because adding O seemed visually appealing. In addition, you could take a common word and easily modify it to make a uh, trademark. An example would be Grano. Real thing. Oh, Drano. Drano. That's, so, a, that's a legacy one too. And it's cool too because the one thing that's neat about the Jello thing, I mean, I mean, needs not the right word, but it's sort of like our buddy Edward Bernays who sort of figured out how to, to, you know, show the, the, the pork industry how they could sell this disgusting byproduct we now know as bacon mm-hmm. and make it like the number one breakfast food in America. Gelatin was just a way of like using these discarded scraps and bits from the meatpacking industry and turning it into something you could then sell back to the public. But the most important aspect of it that had been missing up to this point was that marketing win, that Edward Bernays, who was the godfather of uh, advertising, that Ooh. sort of spin. Yeah, exactly. So Pearl and May were great at making jello but they weren't super fantastic at selling it and they didn't have the capital to push it out successfully in the market and that's why on september 8th in 1899 the couple sold the formula patent and the name entire jello the entire brand of jello to their neighbor a man named frank woodward who at the time was the owner of the genesee food company and they sold it for about what was it 450 dollars yeah, and with our handy dandy inflation calculator, that equates to roughly eleven grand uh, by today's standards. So Woodward knew his business. He was already successful at selling packaged food, and he took the techniques he learned and applied them to Jello. He had his sales force dress in fancy suits and go around to houses offering free samples, right? Just like the bad kids do in every uh, drug warning PSA. The first one's free. Mm-hmm. And they would do so many things to convince grocery store owners to stock shelves with boxes of this powdered gelatin, Jello, And they still had the original four flavors, strawberry, raspberry, lemon, and orange, but it didn't succeed still. Like three people have tried this now with, you know, middling success. And a great article on Serious Eats by Sarah Gray that kind of chronicles the history of the Jello salad um, mentions a little book by the name of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. It came out in 1906 that essentially single-handedly helped establish the Food and Drug Act, which created the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration that we know today. And it became a big deal um, for food to have labels and for things to be seen as safe and pure. And Jell-O really jumped all over that and started using terms like the, the safety bag and uh, repeated the word pure, um, according to this article, no less than three times, even adding it to like the company's slogan. Right. So let's let's take a closer look at Woodward here. So he's he's doing his best. He's got the expertise. It was around 1904 when he and a new employee named William Hummelbaugh had a brilliant idea. They put ads for Jello in the Ladies Home Journal, a nationally syndicated magazine, and they featured smiling, fashionable homemakers in spotless white aprons proclaiming that Jell-O was 
quote, America's favorite dessert. And along with the worries of safety that were also in the zeitgeist at the time, uh, Jell-O was propelled to the mainstream. Annual sales jumped to $250,000. That, that would be around six, a little over six million today. And kids were begging for the dessert because I'm sure, as you know, folks, if you can convince kids to want something, the parents will usually follow the lead. And as Noel said, the cookbooks began to take off. World War I did affect rationing, and after World War II, gelatin's success persisted. It became seen as a creative cooking tool. And at this point, finally, after numerous people had tried to market gelatin, it began to take off and <laughs> It took off in the craziest way. We found we found some weird examples. Yeah, it's true. A guy named Charles Knox who had his own I don't know, I, I look at it as sort of the utilitarian cousin of Jell-O. Uh, it was just the Knox Gelatin Company. Um and it was just a packet. It looks very much the same today as it did then. Very little bells and whistles, no flavors. Uh he took it to the World's Fair in 1904 and had a competition where um anyone could submit their own recipes using gelatin. And a woman who uh here in this serious eats article is only referred to as Mrs. John Cook uh, from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, won third prize in the competition with a thing that she created called perfection salad, not gentleman salad, perfection salad. And I actually found a recipe for this thing. I'm going to describe it to you. Um, it is a mountain uh, of molded orange kind of foggy gelatin filled with an assortment of shredded uh, roughage. And the recipe goes like this. Two envelopes unflavored gelatin, a half cup sugar, one teaspoon salt, one can apple juice, a half cup lemon juice, two tablespoons vinegar, one cup shredded carrot, one cup sliced celery, one cup finely shredded cabbage, a half cup chopped green pepper, and one can chopped pimento. Um, and it is if absolutely foul looking, but it caught on. People loved it. They wanted to be part of the jello wave of the future. And this really kind of created this demand and another era where using jello showed opulence because we were entering the time of refrigeration. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. As the United States enters this industrial boom, uh, the, the world of 2.5 kids, a car in every garage, and endless suburbs, people wanted to keep up with the Joneses. And one of the best ways to do it was to uh, have the latest appliance, right? Uh, similar to microwave cooking a little bit later in history, people wanted to have refrigerators. And if you were bringing a jello salad to the potluck or to the, the party, the, I don't know, the kid's birthday party, the barbecue, it showed that you and your family had one of those newfangled refrigerators. And we cannot, we cannot overestimate, uh, Mrs. Cook's effect on the demand for jello. Food historian James Beard observed in, uh, his, in his book, American Cookery, that Mrs. Cook's victory at the World's Fair unleashed a demand for congealed salads that, according to Beard, this is 1972, he says this, a demand for congealed salads that has grown alarmingly, particularly in the suburbs. Alarmingly, the invasion of the Jello mold. Not yeah, a fan. he went on to well, he did. He couched it. Uh, he went on to say, "Quote: The jellied salad does have its delights, though, and it is without question an American innovation. No doubt about it, Mister Beard. Here, here." So now we've we've set the stage. We've got Knox. We've got Jello. We've got people nowadays arguing that you can follow American social history by looking at the history of Jello ads. I know we haven't really talked about this much, but there was a whole kind of iconography associated with Jello packaging. Some of the early ones used illustrations by Norman Rockwell, right? And then there was a what was it, Ben? The Jello Girl, sort of like a, a spokes thing, right? Mm-hmm. Introduced in 1908, and instrumental, crucial in making American consumers connect the idea of Jell-O with, again, the purity, the innocence of childhood. And although sales of sugar and, you know, therefore Jell-O were rationed uh, during World War One, between the 20s and 30s, the popularity of gelatin salads soars and there were pragmatic reasons behind this. The Depression forced homemakers to stretch ingredients as far as possible. That also included things like sugar that you would have separately, and many recipes require you to add sugar. You didn't have to do that when you're using Jell-O because the sugar was already part of the mix. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And so now we see not just the idea of refrigeration that comes into play later, but we also see the idea of status of proving to your friends and neighbors that you can still do some top-notch entertaining despite the rations, despite the shortages. I've got a recipe for olive relish, which I'm going to save you the save you the trouble here, folks. It seems kind of gross. Olives, pickles, celery, and vinegar, all in a lovely 
a lovely amalgamation with lime jello. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But but now we see kind of a um a Bernaysian, if I could use that word, a Bernaysian approach to marketing here or an aspect of it, because we have to ask ourselves, did people genuinely like this stuff or did they instead like being people who could make it? Well, it's like I said, with my mom and the gentleman's salad, um, her mom would have come from that original time where this was something that was seen as a status symbol, and she was all about these status symbols. That's where my mom got the whole idea of having a, a lovely table place setting. It was all very, very important uh, during times where things were much more scarce to show that you were kind of above the fray, I guess. I mean, it seems a little... I don't know, a little shallow to me personally, but I, I can see how it would have felt important to kind of keep your spirits up and to make your family feel like you had, you know, you were one of the haves, I mm. guess. Um, but of course, like things do, these these kind of jello salad aspic meat monstrosities fell out of favor and jello kind of took its it was its original place. As an easy to make dessert, you had Bill Cosby swooping in, you know, back when he wasn't persona non grata, uh, advertising jello jigglers. Remember jello jigglers? Sure. It was for kids. They used like a little cookie cutter and they were a little, they used a little bit stiffer gelatin, mm. I think, so you could pick them up and play with them. They wanted a gritty reboot. You're absolutely right. By the 1970s and 1980s, the golden age of Jell-O had sort of passed, and that's why in 1986 they decided to rebrand. They got Bill Cosby, phenomenally successful comic at the time, uh, and it was sort of the, the world made new because Americans were no longer as readily familiar with the concept of aspics. And if you had brought a perfection salad or a, a couple of other really choice uh, gelatin dishes that we'll probably read off at the end. If you brought those to a potluck in the 70s or 80s, people would be like, what are you doing? I thought we were friends. Why Why can't you just tell me you don't like me? Exactly. Yeah, it's sort of like bringing someone a, a fruitcake for Christmas. Oh, yeah, we did do an episode on the oldest fruitcake. Remember that? I do. And it goes back to that that question you asked earlier, Ben. Did people really like the way this stuff tasted or was it just like the placebo effect of kind of associating it with status and therefore you could choke it down? Um, <laughs> I like all kinds of stuff, Ben. I'm a relatively adventurous eater, but literally every single one of these things seems absolutely inedible and disgusting to me. And I don't think I could ever convince myself otherwise, you know? Yeah, but we also have to remember that uh, that numerous folks in the audience – wrote back about vinegar pie, and you were all absolutely correct. I'm kind of converted. Oh, it sounds great. But I'm not going to tra- – tell you what I'm not going to try. Let's let's read off some of these gross recipes. Oh, you yeah. want to? Sure, sure. All right. So emerald cantaloupe is not that bad. You put lime jello and canned pineapple in the cantaloupe. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It fills the – is it – it fills the gap? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. another one with a with a melon you can do that kind of – you cut a half – a melon in half and, and you put jello in the in the hole mm. and that – you know, you can scoop it out. So it's sort of like – Double texture for your money. Tell you what, though. Salmon and cottage cheese with boiled eggs as a garnish? Nah. No, sir. <laughs> no, I, I'm just not into it. Jellied lamb salad? No. No? That no. gets a pass? I know we talked about lime jello salads, but did we talk about lime cheese salad? Nope. Do you want to skip that one? Yep. <laughs> 
I would, oh, I, you know, I do have that, that I think is a modern example of this actually working. And, and for me personally, mm-hmm. um, there is a place here in Atlanta called the Spotted Trotter that makes their own pâtés. And a lot of uh, pâtés will have a little layer of aspic on the top. So it's just like a small layer of like a ginger aspic. So the, it's made with like a consomme or a beef broth, but it's flavored with ginger. And when it's almost like a jelly or a, uh, a chutney of some kind. So it's really good for like, you know, mixing with a pate or putting on a piece of toast or something like that. Mm-hmm. It sort of mixes the savory with the sweet. But to me, it's when you really go full bore down that, you know, j- savory jello thing. That's just, right. it's just, I like it maybe as like a garnish or as an additive, uh, but you know, all on its own. Oh boy. And the photography in some of these cookbooks, it's just like, who, who gave the green light to that picture, you know? We invite you to check these out firsthand and send us some of your favorites. And favorite here is a tricky word. It can be the one that you are most fascinated by or the one you have actually tried. We, we of course are not knocking anybody's personal taste. You can send us that stuff to ridiculous at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on the social media, the Facebook, the Instagram, where we're also Ridiculous History. As always, we'd like to thank our super producer, Casey Pegram, as well as author Maria Trimarchi, who wrote Ridiculous History, What's for Dinner? Meat Jello, available on HowStuffWorks.com. Also, thanks to our pal Alex Williams for composing our theme. Um, and most importantly, thanks to you guys for tuning in and hanging out with us for another episode of Ridiculous History. We'll see you next time. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal history. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.